a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey everyone, back with you again. It's Nathan Romas here, and we've got a repeat guest this time uh, from episode one. We've got Ryan Ferry, sergeant of the gang suppression team, back with us. Welcome back. Thanks for having me back. Uh, we kind of left off last time. Uh, we were going to, we're kind of getting into talking about the history of gangs and how some of this stuff, where we are today, started. So, Let's go back because um, you're probably the most knowledgeable person I've ever heard speak on this stuff in Edmonton. So if you kind of want to give us a little rundown, um, tell us where this all kind of came from. Yeah, sure. Uh, I think when we start talking about um, uh, classification of uh, gangs or, or criminal groups, it helps to have a, a like a, a base knowledge and a common understanding and, and a working definition. So... Uh, depending on which source you go to, that's going to change uh, how you define a gang. And so uh, there's there's two uh, uh, leading sort of uh, gang definitions that I think we can operate under. So uh, the Criminal Code of Canada, after a, a number of revisions, uh, addressed organized crime specifically. Um, and the, the, the main bullet points on the org crime section within the Criminal Code is... Uh, a, a criminal organization it, it consists of three or more people that come together as one of their main activities, the commission of uh, serious crimes. And it doesn't count for people that just come together in the moment, uh, like as a, in, on the spur of the moment, mm -hmm. um, to commit a serious crime, and then they disperse or disband. So there's that continuity piece that needs to be uh, sort of accounted for. They, they don't have a minimum base requirement for, is that a month? Is that a week? Is that a couple of days? Um, it's all uh, contingent on the, on the context. Um, and the serious crimes are uh, like the, the major uh, crimes in the criminal code that are uh, uh, prescribed as indictable uh, offenses with uh, serious penalties attached to it. So uh, it's, it's importation, uh, firearms, uh, contraband substances, uh, running a body house, gaming houses, stuff mm -hmm. like that. Uh, murder, serious violence offenses, stuff like that. So then the, the Criminal Intelligence Service of Canada um, has a directive in terms of what are, what are considered gangs and what are considered street gangs. And then each province is allowed to have their own definition as well. So it gets a little bit uh, messy. Yeah. But ultimately, the majority of the provinces and the police agencies working within those provinces are, are somewhere around that same definition. And uh, historically, when we look at uh, across the Western world, at least, um, the definitions and the variability in those definitions can have some serious impacts on um, the, the population that ends up ultimately being targeted and mm -hmm. the implementation of, of whatever sort of interventions that the, the state brings to bear. So if, uh, if uh, historically we look at the UK, uh, there were some researchers that put in some really good work. This is 20 years ago now. Um, they, they weren't um, strict enough in their definition, as far as I understand. Um, and they, they uh, talked about a group of people that come together to commit uh, uh, crimes. And, uh, and they, 
they are, have at their core fear, intimidation, and violence or stuff like that. And what you can see, if you don't define the crime type, uh, that can start to be applied with uh, over top of like youth gangs or, or groups of like soccer hoodlums that get mm-hmm. together and, and, uh, and, and, and they commit mischief or uh, like disturbance related uh, and uh, sort of um, what's, what's the right word? The disorder type crimes. So are you talking like um, if we think of some of the school violence that's gone on lately? Mm-hmm. And it's this group versus that group. Uh, will we call that a gang? No. No, not necessarily. It, Just it, because a group of people stood together when something happened doesn't make them a gang. Correct. And yeah. so it would be a misnomer to be uh, classifying those guys as gangs. And that's not to say that they can't evolve uh, into gangs. And those mm-hmm. are precursors for gang behavior. Um, but it certainly... Uh, it facilitates the conversation to have a, a solid definition of what is a gang, what is organized crime, what are we doing here, what's the purpose here, uh, what are our aims. We have to be able to to measure it correctly. Mm-hmm. And in order to measure it, we have to have a definition. So, we we uh, here in Edmonton uh, we operate off of the, the, the essentially the same uh, definitions. And uh, and when we look at the the history and the evolution of gangs and organized crime here in Edmonton. And from what we've been able to see, um, it's uniquely um, uh, uh, shaped by demographics and geography and population density um, here in in primarily Western Canada, not including the massively uh, densely populated uh, areas within like Vancouver proper. So um, here in Edmonton, at least, uh, you look at... Demographically, in the 70s and 80s, uh, uh, the city was like a quarter million people. Uh, we were very similar in, um, as far as I understand, in, um, the, in in appearance and demographics to, say, Saskatoon. Um, it was relatively homogenous population, uh, stable sort of uh, economic um, uh, uh, structure that that people were there there wasn't a ton of uh boom and bust because edmonton exists so prevalently in the the oil and gas and the energy sector there Mm -hmm. is that fluctuation in terms of how people are doing but um historically we can see that organized crime consisted of like robberies and uh peddling and stolen goods and yeah, uh, we can even uh extend back to the prohibition years uh where uh booze running and stuff like that mm-hmm. was was taking place. And we have existing crime structures from those early days in the settlements uh, of the province 100, 150 years ago. And uh, the, the, um, the demographics that these gangs, organized crime groups that were primarily sort of composed of were either kind of homegrown uh, white dudes or we had uh, uh, indigenous... Um, uh, centric mm-hmm. crime groups that were were either using the reserves as kind of a home base or would uh, come from reserves and, and there was this this um, uh, interaction between uh, uh, areas and we're all geographically kind of uh, located uh, close enough so that crime um, crosses between yeah. yeah between borders of municipalities I guess we can mm-hmm. say and then um, we see a disturbance or an alteration in the demographics with an elevation and an increase in uh, immigration uh, to the Edmonton region. 
And so in the 70s and 80s, we had a huge influx of uh, Southeast Asian communities. So uh, uh, India, Pakistan, um, Afghanistan, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll broadly uh, term those groups Southeast Asian. Uh, huge influx in uh, East Asian um, uh, immigration and refugees uh, from typical uh, countries like uh, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, uh, so on and so forth. And then um, a little bit later in, in uh, the back end as uh, Lebanese and Caribbean uh, sort of influx in population, you get all these people that come in and, um, and they, they bring with them uh, different um, you know, uh, uh, cultural norms and, and different um, uh, sort of expectations for how they operate within a broader community. And so mm-hmm. you get uh, these, these changes in demographics and it, it creates um, initial sort of destabilizations of social groups. Uh, and that's anything from uh, the makeup of, of who your, your uh, PTA, Parents uh, Teacher Association mm-hmm. might be, uh, to, the, to who your kids go to, uh, end up going to school with. It, it changes uh, um, a bunch of uh, things in the economics and uh, education sector. It also changes uh, the face of uh, who's involved in crime and criminality. And so historically, and this has been really backed up in, in both objective research and subjective sort of um, case studies, is that we find um, uh, we can unequivocally say that immigration and refugees don't necessarily cause organized crime or gang behavior or, or mm-hmm. cause an increase in crime. What it does is it changes the face. Those from those immigrant groups or those ethnic groups, they, they alter the face and the, the demographic of who's involved in crime. It, we get a bunch of kids who... Uh, don't feel like they fit in because they come from a culturally different place. So they're not Canadian enough. I use that in uh, quotations because that's been uh, quoted to researchers. They don't feel Canadian enough and they feel ostracized within their own peer group. And they can't turn to their parents or their family because oftentimes their family doesn't have the social skills or the language skills to help their kids navigate this new sort of social minefield. Mm -hmm. And so these kids stick together. they come together in groups that are uh, ethnically homogenous. Typically, um, they they have um, shared values and and uh, shared appearance and shared sort of uh, language. Sometimes religion. Sometimes um, social activities are similar within the group. And There's what, always something that kind of bonds them together. If you look historically across humanity, we tend to lump together mm-hmm. in uh, either appearance or shared experience or shared interests mm-hmm. and we group like with like you like the others i like the others let's high five and wear a jersey together yeah. it doesn't matter where we come from we have that shared experience when, when we band together in representation of what our what our interests are or what our goals are and you see that constantly in terms of it's like an us versus them uh, humans are very very good at grouping together along whatever kind of lines and so when you get these kids uh coming from these uh different kind of cultural experiences. Some of the kids band together and they decide, you know what, we're going to take over the cardiothoracic surgery at the University of Alberta. And they, they get together and that's, that's that friend group that goes forward and does well uh, mm-hmm. academically and maybe economically. And then some of these uh, kids get together and they decide, I'm going to be really good at organized crime. Mm-hmm. And they, they get these pervasive 
long-lasting, well-bonded crime groups that are hard to infiltrate, hard to, they, they have uh, loyalty towards each other, and they have um, the, this, this background of shared experience and family kind of affiliation. And, uh, and it, it makes it hard for the existing power structure or the existing uh, policing group to, to, to have an impact on, on the crime type that these guys uh, get into. So um, in, the, uh, in the 80s and, and 90s, there were principal crime groups that had existed as uh, social groups together, kids together, and then they graduate towards uh, more serious violence. And then that's where they, they satisfy those criteria mm-hmm. of group of three or more with long-lasting pervasive sort of relationships, and they, they participate as one of the primary activities in this serious crime. So um, when we look at the, the evolution of gangs, oftentimes um, groups of typically young men will get together between the ages of like 17 and 24 and they'll band together and it can go younger, younger Mm -hmm. as as young as 12. Sometimes they'll band together for like protection and belonging and they get together and they, they might do some, some juvenile delinquent stuff, but they're generally just forming their own, uh, you know, social norms within a group and they get together, they belong to something or they're protected from, uh, external sort of, uh, predatory forces or what they perceive to be social uh, dangers or physical dangers. Mm-hmm. And then um, invariably we get these groups that will test the waters in the use of violence. And the use of violence is what delineates and defines street gangs and organized crime um, in terms of who the police need to pay attention to. So I, I can go off on a tangent. We were talking about this earlier. There's a there's a debate about the role of police in our society. It's it's certainly more uh, prevalent now than at any time in my history. And we look at what the police are for, and and what the role of police. Um, if you look um, at the the historical sort of anthropo- anthropo- anthropological record mm-hmm. of of what human beings are prone to do. Um, it seems that um, we did very well in at least extending back to hunter-gatherer times and having social influence over the members of our group. So we belong to a small group. Um, there's some, uh, some, some uh, sociological uh, um, theories uh, that are rooted in some observation uh, in primatology and, and some sociological studies that talk about um, the monkey sphere, um, mm-hmm. the, the primate's ability to um, maintain social relationships with a cohesive group. It, it, it depends on the type of primate and, and uh, some of the, uh, the, the, um, the environmental factors that exist in influencing this group. But by and large, uh, researchers suggest that that you can have about 120 really solid connect or 100 to 120 really solid connections before group cohesion starts to erode. You can have some social consequences for antisocial behavior mm-hmm. amidst a group where everybody knows your name, everybody knows each other, and and we can shame Ryan for taking Nathan's, you know, iPod or or. Uh, 
whatever it becomes. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have the ability to um, have authority figures, respected authority figures within that, that, that tight knit community that can exert either power or influence. And we get group cohesion to a certain extent. I didn't live back then, so I can't say uh, how entirely successful it was. I'd almost say this sounds kind of like, if if you think of it, you know, your dad being disappointed in you as opposed to just saying, listen to me because I'm in this position. So it's the positional authority versus uh, you got, um, what would you call it? Well, well, there's social consequences. Term yeah, there's social consequences. You just don't want to disappoint them. To people that matter to you because yeah. we're highly social beings and your your social status within a group of your peers or the people that you respect matters. And it seems to uh, dictate behavior uh, to those who are suffering some sort of like uh, disorder or, or uh, mental illness or, or uh, you know, some sort of debilitating kind of inability to function. In those but nowadays we've completely moved away from that. So we've, we've drastically altered um, in the span of a couple hundred years. Well, it's, it's been going on for about a thousand years. We've drastically altered how human beings uh, uh, live and interact. And what we've constructed in, in our urban sort of orientation and in our industrialization is that it appears uh, we have this vast anonymity within our communities. And Mm -hmm. what you present to the world, either selectively through social media or your friends at work or whatever, is this facade and this limited sort of view and window into who and what you are. And and we all have to sort of interact with each other to get along, but there aren't pervasive, long-lasting sort of connections to people that can impact you socially. Once you leave your house, if you're lucky enough to have a, a... either a nuclear family or, or whatever your your uh, formative years are. It, once you leave that mm-hmm. uh, sort of family group, uh, that family unit, um, there's there's a very real possibility that you could go the rest of your adult life uh, without having to uh, suffer any of those social consequences. So it appears that we in the Western world, at least, have come together and, and created a, a system to counteract that anonymity and the the, the ability to be a, a antisocial or a bad actor within a broader community where we have no no capacity to to reach out and say, hey, you can't do those things. So this is where the police would and come And this is in. where law and the, the police system have, have had to come in and, and replace those social consequences. So we collectively, as a, as a Western society, have come together and said, um, well, we can universally sort of debate, but we can come forward with uh, these uh, prescri- prescriptive values. Uh, you, you, you'll you see that they're remarkably similar to the Ten Commandments sometimes, and I'm not a religious person, but it's foundationally based and you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't hurt, mm-hmm. you shouldn't take what's not yours, you shouldn't be, a, be an asshole. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you are an asshole, who do we turn to? Uh, because we can't turn to each other because you might be able to get on... Uh, on a train or in a car or, or whatever and travel outside of the influence of this social circle and just do whatever you want and there's no impact or no no sort of consequences. So we've we've created the modern day policing structure and the state mechanism to facilitate that, to act as the consequence, to act as the, the uh, surveyor and the, the keeper of the rules. 
I think it's um, you can see that in a few different things that we've taken out of society, right? So things like death. You don't see death on day to day. You got a very specific person or set of people that go and remove a body from a situation or deal with it after the fact. But the day-to-day person, you know, probably never seen a dead person. Whereas you go back, I don't know, 100 years and the family can see all kinds dead. of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You, there's a bunch of situations. So now talk about uh, your own self-preservation, people protecting themselves. That's been completely removed from society. We're a, a civil society. Nobody needs to walk around with their gun slung and, and their ninja sword on. And yeah, there's a there's an exchange there. There, there is an exchange uh, that people fundamentally, um, in order to live in a broader society like this, and this is this might be a little controversial. You give up some of your personal liberties and mm-hmm. your personal sort of freedoms in order to be protected by the group and the group could be a bunch of spear wielding uh uh hunters or 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 all the way up to uh, we we exchange our our uh our hard-earned wages uh based on the time we've spent to be able to be protected from the elements uh by by paying some faceless company to give us gas so we can heat our Mm -hmm. homes and whatever else so we trade our personal liberties and our jeopardies for a sense of uh, convenience, uh, modern uh, convenience and, and modern technology to make our lives uh, better. Uh, it, it sequesters us outside of what some people will call the natural world. It, it takes us out of that existence uh, where you're dealing with uh, death or um, uh, famine or, or uh, it, like it, it is, it is, um, Pretty well established that there's a lot of there's a lot of hardship uh, outside of these civil societies. So, so when we talk about the police structure and where the value is in policing, and I'm not I'm not a cop apologist. I'm not a, a, a lock them up and throw away the key kind of hard 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 stance. Cops are right in all instances. But what what I start to to see is that the police need to. Uh, be inserted into um, civil society uh, at the critical juncture where uh, what is happening exceeds the communities or exceeds the public's uh, capacity to have an impact or to to handle whatever is happening in front of them. So severe mental illness, severe well, severe um, illness, uh, minor illness. Uh, your mom and dad take care of you can administer um, some mm-hmm. semblance of first aid or, or minor sort of pharmaceuticals in the home or whatever environment. But when it gets serious enough, you have to turn to a professional and you take them to a doctor or hospital. So I, can, I don't remember where I've heard this, but um, I heard in I, probably another podcast I listened to and I thought it was, uh, it's had me thinking about it for a while, but I was thinking the police act as the closed fist of the public, essentially we're out there not to be your, uh, you know, your, not hitman, but like your uh, bodyguard. And we're not there to just at your beck and call to go deal with this person. But we are there doing the job that nobody else wants to do. And that's been removed from society. When you're not obligated to protect yourself, 
when you're not obligated to kill for yourself, to, to, to go out and chop wood for yourself, mm-hmm. when you're not obligated to do all those things, it's not within your normal uh, day-to-day operational kind of capacity to figure out how to wire this car or how to wire my house or like any number of these things that have now become specialized. And, and there's a ton of benefit for specialization with it, like the occupational specialization that we see, we get, we get enormous personal satisfaction uh, from uh, people that are interested in just what they're interested in. They can trade that uh, labor or that effort uh, yep. and, and they can exchange that for, you know, safety and security across uh, their lives and uh, a whole bunch of different reasons for why that's a good thing. And what we, what we have to understand and what a lot of people don't agree with at present, or maybe it's not a lot of people, but there is certainly a, a, a vocal component of uh, the the anti-police sort of uh, uh, viewpoint is that human beings can sometimes be violent and irrational or self-interested to the exclusion of all others. And when you look at trying to influence that behavior and trying to sort of uh, have a some sort of... Uh, uh, power to to bring to bear against that sort of uh, either self interest or or uh, not just self interest but uh, uh, but but malice towards others. Um, you have to be able to offload that uh, and rely upon somebody to be the professional application of force mm-hmm. and violence. Because human beings can and will be violent, you need an apparatus that. Uh, some sort of uh, ability to meet that violence. And man, do we have to put um, a ton of uh, rules and expectations and uh, uh, um, measures around that application of violence. And that we've, we've done that. We've well, I think exhaustively. People, yeah, people don't realize too that, you know, as a normal everyday citizen who doesn't do policing, you are subject to usually the the only things you're ever going to come across is maybe criminal code or you know some provincial acts under right, in that realm, like you get a ticket or something, uh, or the other side would be the civil side. Somebody sues you, but as a police officer, you have other levels of accountability just by doing the job that you're doing. So the police act. So I could do something that isn't criminal, and maybe I don't get sued for it. But it just kind of looked like, you know, somebody in the service says, you know, I just didn't really like what you did. Discreditable conduct. Give you the catch-all and just might make us look bad. Might not meet the threshold for criminal. Well, a normal citizen is not subject to that. Yeah, and so I I think that um, uh, depending on uh, individual agencies and and individual kind of guiding national principles across the Western world, we, we... we have some variability in what's acceptable and what's not. Um, we have uh, varying degrees of, of oversight over these these policing bodies, but universally, um, the expectations are that there's a professional application of the authorities that are granted to the police um, in absence of people being able to use violence and force and incarceration or or, or sanctions themselves. And so um, when you look at the insertion, that, that critical juncture of where police need to come in, we start to look at the application of violence on behalf of, uh, so individuals who become violent are one thing. Um, they use violence to get what they want. 
generally speaking, if we get somebody who just decides they're going to dedicate themselves or finds themselves dedicated to a, a point in time where they're uh, they're using violence to get what they want, mm-hmm. um, oftentimes uh, those individuals can be um, that behavior can be neutralized either by the introduction of police and there's criminal charges and there's a whole bunch of sanctions that can exist um, to be able to influence that, that person's behavior. Or we we find a way to have some sort of social impacts on that person to get them back into what I like to start talk, talking about is this social contract. We all abide by this social contract. I agreed to drive on the right-hand side of the road if you do, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm not going to stab you uh, with a fork while we're eating know dinner at some restaurants together because you looked at me weird or something like that so (laughs) we have we have an obligation and there's these these codified rules um throughout uh society that that comprise the social contract and people who operate outside of that um as individuals we have the ability to have some sort of impact and and those impacts hopefully change that behavior where where gangs now get involved it adds another layer of complexity and jeopardy to the overall community because gangs will traditionally and typically act in each other's best interest or in the interest of the gang. And so if I incarcerate one member of the gang, there's nothing stopping from another member of the gang continuing criminality and violence in their stead mm-hmm. on behalf of that individual or for the material benefit of the group. And so when we get these gangs that are uh, graduating from that early protection group to we're going to use violence to get what we want. And then they, uh, uh, they progress and they, they become more sophisticated into uh, like legitimate organized crime group. And then some of those legitimate organized crime groups uh, through sophistication or brutality or both, they graduate even higher and become um, uh actors on a broader stage so they they become multinational multi-jurisdictional organized crime groups that can influence and destabilize entire industries and and uh, uh, power structures like uh, the judiciary or business or uh, municipal governments or Mm -hmm. federal governments so so uh, all up and down a spectrum what we call the spectrum of of, uh, gangs Um, we have the threat or the use of violence that kind of uh, differentiates them from other crime groups. Because you can have, for example, you can have an organized crime group um, or, a, or a, a crime group that is um, consistently nonviolent in what they do. So uh, I look at uh, fraud rings or uh, professional um, like shoplifting groups. They migrate across Canada. Uh, and they have uh, sophisticated systems of uh, defeating security uh, measures mm-hmm. uh, throughout retail stores, and and they're just they're nonviolent, and they get away with hundreds and thousands of dollars in product, and then they use that to to live their lives, or they ship it overseas, or wherever whatever they do with the capital they generate from that. Um, I would say, and this is my opinion, that um, uh, society can still have some sort of effect against that group by those kinds of groups. Um, but the introduction of violence is where uh, we as a community should all go, okay, 
we need to hand this off to the professionals that are uh, a- capable and able of dealing with that violence, with their own violence, perhaps, or with training uh, in de-escalation of violence and so on and so forth. So we, we talk about police need to handle gangs in concert with a bunch of other social structures that can help to either prevent or uh, alter the behavior of, of a gang group. So getting back to the Edmonton context, mm-hmm. you start to see in the, in the 80s and 90s, you see these, these groups of young men that have come together within the existing um, uh, demographic of whoever is involved in, in organized crime in Edmonton. And then you, you have a, a really, really interesting marriage between these gang groups and the use of technology to facilitate their criminal enterprise. Um, and so uh, what we saw was the advent of cell phones. So uh, no, I'll, I'll go back a little bit. Um, drugs became really, really serious uh, and started to really cause a lot of havoc. And in particular, as cocaine was introduced into into North America uh, way before way before the 80s, but it started to really, really pick up steam in urban centers in the 80s and 90s, and crack cocaine came mm-hmm. in right after that. And typically what we saw in Edmonton was that there were, there were a few instances of uh, what we call fortified drug houses, and these are barricaded, guarded um, uh, drug houses where uh, somebody would, would be involved in distribution um, from that uh, particular address. If you wanted this drug, you would go to that house and mm-hmm. police would have to try and defeat that by picking people off coming and going. But there was a lot of uh, covert behavior surrounding uh, the use of these drug houses. And if we look in uh, across North America on the Eastern seaboard, you see a lot of um, neighborhood to neighborhood gang existence. Mm-hmm. And these gangs get together and they, they, they either um, control a, a, a commodity. So like, prostitution or drugs or illegal cigarettes or firearms or stolen goods or whatever, this commodity-based sort of economic driver. And in order to um, to control their either neighborhood or their product, you would see like uh, entire uh, apartment blocks or neighborhoods taken over by a gang. And they, they guarded their turf um, really, really strongly. Um, and that's where you get block to block sort of violence and the, the graffiti tagging and all the rest of that. That's conventionally what we see in, in media. And uh, I, I guess uh, in Edmonton, at least in most of kind of Western Canada is that we didn't have the population density to support that kind of uh, focused and concentrated criminality in particular areas. And so that spread outness and that that lack of population density made that model really difficult here. And when you when you pair um, that uh, different demographic uh, and that that population density and the introduction of cell phone technology, you get some innovating young people, mm-hmm. and that's when the term dial a doping was essentially invented here. As far as I understand, historically. Um, uh, Edmonton-based drug dealers uh, started employing the use of cell phones, and so I I could be pushing my own brand of cocaine, and I would run a phone number four two three dope, let's call it, and everybody knows they can call that number, and I, as the principal drug dealer, would uh, uh, 
distribute my product to a very select few people. We would recruit uh, young men, typically between the ages of like 16 and 20 with clean driving records and who looked you know, somewhat proper. And yep. we would give them a set amount of drugs and they would get the phone for eight to 12 hours and they would be expected to sell these drugs at this price, come back to, to this designated person to supply you with more drugs once you're out. Yeah, and, and that still continues today. And 100%, that, that, is, that is the model but for drug dealing today. kind of the lower level of, I guess, the hierarchy. That's what they're doing on the street. Ultimately, that's how, uh, that's how uh, a vast majority of our street-level drug dealing occurs. So somebody phones or texts that number, and they're able to uh, have that. that it's pizza, pizza delivery for, for drugs. Mm-hmm. And what was happening with that, that group of organized crime groups or the, that selection of organized crime groups. So there was the Asian organized crime uh, that primarily stuck together. They would form uh, alliances and relationships with um, other or crime groups to, to, you know, for whatever reason. So some sort of positive benefit or a positive social interaction. These existed within power structures. So on the far end um, of, of these existing crime structures, you have low, low, low socioeconomic indigenous-based street gangs um, that are still pervasive to this day. You have much more organized, uh, sophisticated groups like our outlaw motorcycle gangs that follow like a hierarchy and a structure. These new emerging groups um, find room in the spaces in between mm-hmm. and they find opportunities to expand their enterprise and make their impact and make a whole bunch of money and power and respect here in town. So we see the groups that were um, uh, uh, existing and uh, rising to power. They come from uh, cultures uh, where um, there's use of uh, knives uh, to commit violence. And so we had a lot of stabbings, a lot of stabbings at the hands of these organized crime groups and not a whole lot of availability of guns and not a whole lot of you know, familiarity in use of guns. And um, this goes outside of like the use of video games to familiarize yourself with guns. I, I, I'm not as well read on that stuff, but uh, uh, and it's I don't buy it. <laughs> it's, it's completely debatable, but uh, we see the manifestation of, of this, this uh, violence uh, with, with a lot of knives. There are some shooters and some guns that involve or that, that uh, uh, exist within these groups. And um, what we see is, is these groups mimicking what they believe is uh, the best way to do these, uh, um, these uh, gangs is to belong to a group, have a shot caller or a leader. You have a, a unified group identity. So through symbology, like tattoos or clothing or hand signals or there's- Just the gang names. Gang right. names, you, you have undying loyalty to this mission in this cause and uh, we're fans of the oilers we wear the jerseys we spend our money mm-hmm. uh or whatever it becomes any sort of uh group identity so these these gang groups uh adopt a, a unified group name and and uh, they they um there was one group they had the, the mr2s they had to drive the same mr2 car it's a crappy mm-hmm. i think it was a toyota um yeah, a little coupe, little sports <laughs> yeah, that, car. Those sports cars. So what that does is is that um, makes them instantly. It gives them notoriety and it gives them group identity, but it makes them also easy easier to prosecute against uh, because cops can uh, say that these guys are a group. Why? Because they told you they're part of this group. 
through their use of symbology or identification mm-hmm. with this group. And so um, Canada as a nation tried to uh, enact some stronger legislation, uh, put some sections into the criminal code to help uh, police uh, combat this uh, this growth in sophistication for, for gangs and organized crime groups. Um, um, the result is that the, the gangs uh, existed in this power uh, structure for about a decade. And then there's a, a historically in Edmonton, you see a change in who decides to stay in and what kind of group cohesion you have. So Asian organized crime was was the major, major um, distributor of, of drugs and power and influence here in, in Edmonton, in the Edmonton region, um, facilitated by and supported by some other uh, uh, structures. Uh, but then you have group infighting across groups and within groups, mm. and we see uh, uh, an evolution at the use of firearms uh, with these uh, gangsters. And... Uh, uh, we could sit here and fill up an entire day in terms of philosophy on why we think guns became more prevalent. Some people suggest that it's um, it's reflected in our media consumption, so movies and TVs and, and uh, rap videos and a whole bunch of other stuff popularize and um, and glorify the use of guns. I, well, now people think it's from COVID, or at least that's what the news tells people. <laughs> Well, yeah, we can we can talk about the COVID effects for sure, but <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't really. Want to. <laughs> I think our our gang problem existed long before COVID came along, and it hasn't yes. really been influenced by yeah, disease and illness and pandemics. Um, but if we're looking at like so the history of the gangs here, so you're saying a lot of stuff kind of started around with there's Asian organized crime was one of the say one of the first major players in kind of like our modern era of gangs. Yeah, correct. The stuff that still kind of has an influence today. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, what uh, what we see in in these uh, these gang groups is that they are typically influenced uh, by some of their own cultural kind of um, uh, expectations and norms. And so a lot of these guys end up um, mimicking either for uh, parents' approval or social approval or fitting in with society, mm-hmm. mimicking the nuclear family. They get jobs and mortgages and and get a family and raise kids and their kids go into school. And, and at some point, generationally, they're going to migrate out of that um, uh, criminality and that gang, uh, unless, unless you teach your kids to be part of the gang and it becomes mm-hmm. a multi-generational sort of organized crime family, which happens and has happened here. So with the Asian organized crime, that would have been, we'd be talking like the FK, the fog yeah, killers. So here, here in Edmonton in particular, and it's kind of reflected down in Calgary, here in Edmonton, it was the Crazy Dragons mm-hmm. and the Crazy Dragon Killers. They're real original with their names. Um, <laughs> and those, those come as a result of, you know, um, personal... Uh, beefs or personal conflict between individuals that used to be criminally aligned or not COVID. Definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not. The, the, the reasons for those conflicts uh, come from both their criminality and their commodities trafficking and stuff Mm -hmm. like that all the way down to you stepped on my shoes at the club or whatever it became. And so 
um, I find it very interesting uh, in terms of the spaces that those gang guys uh, occupy when they're uh, in between their criminality. So um, oftentimes uh, in some depictions in, in media, uh, you'll see like uh, block parties or, or gangs on, on the eastern seaboard. Uh, they take over entire blocks and that will be their their entire world their social structure and their their recreation and all the rest of that stuff happens in that geographic area mm-hmm. not so here in edmonton at least and uh, uh to a certain extent down in calgary as well is that we get um this behavior where they don't want to stay at home and they're living in regular neighborhoods and it's it's not as cool to be uh just at your house when you're a gangster you end up being able to uh go to uh peddle your influence and enjoy the fruits of your illegal uh, uh ventures and, mm-hmm. and you go to these clubs and we see them interact with the the, the most of the, the public and our, our community in these social spaces in bars restaurants nightclubs lounges and um, that's where they're able to enjoy their status as dangerous individuals or individuals with money and power and clout and uh, bravado and uh, the women and the celebrity lifestyle and a lot of that stuff is really, really attractive for those guys. Well, I think we'll kind of get on to that when we talk about the intervention stuff yeah. and some of your uh, professorial <laughs> endeavors that you take on. Uh, but so where do we move? We were talking about having the crazy dragons cdk uh and then what is it so what's the evolution yeah to where so, we are now? so then the evolution is that that we move uh, uh and we see um here in edmonton at least we see uh caribbean based uh uh kid or kids with caribbean uh, history and uh ethnic kind of origin uh for their families and they band together into uh two distinct groups north side and west end jamaicans is what they call themselves and there's some police name groups and some uh, some self-named groups i'm not going to get too heavy into the groups mm-hmm. but we can say that there is an existing conflict between those groups and within those groups and they start to uh we start to see the emergence of the use of guns in the caribbean uh, uh and the black kids this that, is like the whole party shootings caribbean heritage this is where we see We've moved in the late 90s and early 2000s away from, uh, we, we have a, a number of clubs in the city that are uh, welcoming and attractive and play great music and pretty women and a whole bunch of other stuff. And they start having a bunch of shootings at these clubs because you get this interaction of um, adversarial groups and they're not in uh, like geographically controlled block to block areas where you have mm-hmm. all of your shooters that live real close to you and they have all their shooters. And if we want to reach out and hurt you, we go to your block and we shoot up your block that doesn't exist in Edmonton. And so these guys, uh, the volatility here in Edmonton is that everybody wants to go to these clubs and be seen in these social, social spaces. And so they, they come up against each other and they know where each other is, or they come in these chance Mm-hmm. kind of encounters and they shoot at each other and or they wait outside they shoot them as they go out the, the front door so these um groups so we have development of the caribbean based groups and then the omg stuff so the outlaw motorcycle gangs hell's yeah. angels and all their friends they're still because they've been around for a long long time are they where do they fit in in this whole scheme of things. They exist at the upper end in terms of uh, power and influence. Uh, we believe at this point um, that the, the 
existing outlaw motorcycle gangs uh, hold um, a particular uh, capacity for uh, power and influence over trafficking of uh, 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 a number of different commodities, mm-hmm. so whether it's uh, drugs or particular drugs or human trafficking or whatever. Um, we see interaction um, with a bunch of really, really high-ranking Hells Angels members uh, across a number of different kind of ethnically oriented mm-hmm. uh, organized crime groups, so yep. Asian organized crime guys and hanging out with Caribbean guys, all with uh, these these bikers at uh, kind of the epicenter or consistently across multiple groups. So they don't have any, it doesn't appear that they had any type of preferential loyalty towards one group or another. Wherever money can be made. It, it honestly seems like that's that. That's what it comes down yeah. to. And then the indigenous-based uh, street gangs end up sort of existing in these lower strata, geographically kind of locked, almost like landlocked. Uh, they don't have upward mobility. They're not driving around in, in Bentleys with hidden compartments. And they're mm-hmm. relegated to driving around on BMX bikes, and their hidden compartment is their backpack or the the gun yeah. they have slung over their shoulder with a shoestring attached so to it. After the so we have the development of uh, Caribbean based gangs, and then where do we go from there? So, so who's the, next? the 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 evolution of the power structure within Edmonton is that in the in the early two thousands, right around two thousand four, five, and six, we had the introduction of another. Um, another crime group that has strong ethnic ties, and this is the Central East African uh, kids, uh, first generation and second generation Canadians, and they're Somali, Eritrean, Ethiopian. And they end up coming, becoming Edmonton-based, um, and from, from what we can understand is there's, there's a strong contingent of these kids that band together, um, and it's a minority segment of that broader community in that population mm-hmm. it's a it's a segment nonetheless and they they identify with each other based on their ethnicity so they group themselves together and there's there's a whole bunch of reasons for for why they uh, apparently feel um segregated or uh, ostracized from the broader community and, and there's again there's an entire day's worth of uh, uh topic uh, mm-hmm. conversational topics but we can see the, the behavior that is manifested from that group is that we have um, them uh, uh, involved in uh, inner group conflict and then uh, an external group of Central East African-based kids that are coming from uh, Ontario and uh, Quebec. And they try to essentially muscle in and take over what's happening here in Edmonton. And it results in very public shootings. A huge spike in, in uh, the use of firearms within that community and and that has an impact across the rest of the gang landscape because mm-hmm. if one group is prepared to commit violence it's just the same as how young uh, 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 burgeoning and emerging crime groups coming out of high school that's how they differentiate themselves who's willing to do the more crazy stuff mm-hmm. and who's willing to commit the violence then we take the existing um, sort of social and power structure of the 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 gang landscape here in Edmonton and then we introduce somebody more willing or more capable to commit violence and heinous serious violence on their own behalf and everybody else has to respond either in kind or get out of this lifestyle or they look to use that group and say okay you you are willing to use this extreme level of violence if I can wield that power Very so much. one group is going to 
as a, as a proxy. Power over another. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, Say, as a proxy. Oh, let them go do the violence. We'll use them as the shooters. I don't have to pull the trigger and the police don't look at me. 100%. And that has been the evolution of, of uh, major players across the gang landscape here in Edmonton and across kind of North America. We, we get people to use others uh, mm-hmm. as a proxy for their own gains. And so the introduction of the violence and the firearms availability, and we can talk about how they got their guns, whether there was an existence of, of guns here in, in Western Canada and, and whether they could be purchased or brought across border or stolen from break and enters and converted into handguns. Yeah, a lot of it very much depends on the sophistication of the group and how Correct. much money. But without a doubt. So, so one of the maxims I like to kind of express to a lot of people in terms of like, the trade-off between security and liberty. We could turn this whole entire city into a maximum security prison, and we would still have contraband and assaults and murders and a whole bunch of things. I I jokingly say, and I I use it kind of with some levity, the problem is people. Mm -hmm. People are corruptible. So uh, if you can't bring it across uh, a border in this regard, then we'll try and uh, uh, compromise some sort of security measure on this side. Well, I think with what you're saying there, though, is uh, a lot of the narrative out there. So when you look at any of the media, look at what any of the politicians say, everything is always, well, one is too many. And we should have zero murders and we should have zero collisions. And it's not realistic. And people being people living all close together and on top of one another you have to have an acceptable level of uh, risk in there and built in. And I think people don't have these honest conversations saying, yeah, people are going to die. It's well, not saying it's it's allowed or that we permit it, but it's saying just let's be real about it and talk about real solutions if we're just going to um, shoot for utopia. With, <laughs> yeah, without without making light of it, um, and without being able to quote uh, hard stats, um, I was, I, funny enough, I was reading a report uh, not too long ago about uh, the evolution of vehicle safety uh, measures. So mm-hmm. that with the uh, improvement in technology and braking uh, distance being reduced and responsivity and, and uh, um, a whole bunch of different safety features, uh, what seems to happen, what researchers find is that uh, it appears that human beings and people will drive in a more egregious manner, the safer their cars get. They're willing to subject themselves to a, a base level of risk. And if they, 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 they feel uh, safer now, feel safer now to go faster or do something more else. daring, so they'll, they'll exist, right. They'll, they'll push limits right to the, the breaking point, I guess is for better, mm-hmm. uh, lack of a better uh, term. It appears that, uh, uh, inherently human beings there's an acceptable level of loss or risk or injury and i i without being complicit you can try and understand uh the broader kind of impacts of of the existence and the the realities of living with human beings because like Mm -hmm. i said before human beings can sometimes be violent and messy and self-interested and that's that's the reality of what we have right in front of us so we're in we're talking in the mid 2000s to kind of Go back to this here. Uh, Mid two thousands, we're talking about Central East African groups um, and some of the violence that we were seeing, where there was lots of shootings. Where do we go from there? 
Yeah, and and not to not to leave out any groups. There's 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 plenty of of white guys, for lack of a better term. Mm. Uh, we don't necessarily see ethnically tied groups of Caucasians sticking together. Like the the uh, association of uh, descendants of Irish immigrants don't make themselves a crime group, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get we get these uh, Caucasian kids and white kids that that exist uh, across a lot of these crime groups. So I, I'm not trying to in any way paint the picture that that uh, only um, ethnic minorities or visible minorities are participating in this crime. Well, yeah, and further to that, I mean, we're saying there's indigenous-based street gangs. Traditionally, they were that. And then as they've moved into the city, there's been, like, we see black guys in those groups. We yes. see white guys in those groups. Uh, and we'll get to the point, the the current yeah. status of people in this city, the groups. And it's a complete mishmash of everybody. You see... Um, there's brown guys in uh, the Hell's Angels. There's yeah, on the half coast. these named groups or what used to be named groups. They're a mix of everything. So it's just it's really interesting because you get this cultural influence when you have a, a ethnically homogenous group or a reasonably homogenous group. They're influenced by a crime group. I'm speaking about. They're they're reasonably influenced by the the culture that exists uh, surrounding them and their family and their peer group and where they come from. Uh, and that could be transplanted culture uh, here in the Canadian context. Um, but in some groups, we see a fractured sort of sense of uh, loyalty to uh, family or whatever. So mm-hmm. it's not as strong, oh, you insulted my family name or whatever else, but there's reputational violence and repu- reputational sort of um, wrongs that have been committed. You disrespected me in front of these girls or these whatever. And so we yeah. get some groups that are motivated by this reputational sort of uh, uh, sense of regard and some it's other groups. Like an honor violence. And, and there there are some groups that are really, really, really honor-based, mm-hmm. um, really strongly on, honor-based. And so uh, the violence becomes um, almost uh, like uh, vengeance at all costs. And we saw that in our Southeast Asian community, uh, in the, that's why Millwoods, uh, that's the Southeast corner of Edmonton for a long time had a really, really bad reputation was because of a, a heavy concentration of, of Southeast Asian, uh, people, uh, um, settled there and the kids from their group that ended up getting into gang violence were tremendously, um, uh, motivated to commit violence uh, on behalf of the group due to like reputation, mm-hmm. and so we see fire bombings that go back and forth. And the kids were calling themselves um, uh, Southside Boys and Brown Town and a whole bunch of other kind of self-named groups, um, and so we see this uh, rise and fall of, of uh, powerful groups willing to commit violence or. Uh, just bringing so much sophistication to their criminal operation that they hold sway and influence. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the introduction of a, a new group willing to do crime or forced to do crime, we can get into the motivators, uh, but these central East African kids that get together. And then uh, right around uh, the 2010s, we see the formation and the the alteration of our crime groups. A lot of our Asian organized crime guys have have, like I said, aged out of this lifestyle um, uh, Lebanese kind of family groups, or familial kind of aligned groups are receding from that public use of violence. There's still uh, segments of the population that are 
prone to violence or, or using violence, but we see them kind of out of the limelight, um, and we see an emergence of, of uh, a group of uh, guys uh, that are either uh, African or Caribbean-based heritage. They've come together and form a, a broader supergroup, um, about 50 strong, and they're uh, primarily interested in uh, prostitution and drug dealing, and they, they uh, commit uh, drug dealing um, at the kilo level, so kilogram level, uh, across multiple provinces. And it's quite a, 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 an enterprise. And what the difference is between these groups is that they appear to, while they, they source importation of drugs through tr traditional lines, what uh, ends up happening with this group uh, was that they started to rip off other drug dealers internally within the group and then externally as well. They would watch, it's almost like Dexter for drug dealers. They would watch and hear and listen and do their own research and figure out who had a supply of drugs in town. And they would either commit uh, home invasions uh, with firearms or they would commit kidnappings, targeted kidnappings to people that had access. When I talked with Kim Bolin, uh, she was on the last episode and she was kind of talking about a similar thing, how they're becoming more sophisticated. We talked about her article that she wrote, The Anatomy of a Gangland Hit. Yes. And it lays out, well, they get the, you know, they do this and then they do this. They're doing surveillance. Correct. They're following each other. They've got uh, informants into each other. Correct. So, yeah, they are becoming much more sophisticated. Yeah, that's what we see um, with the advent of... Um uh, I, I think it's for a variety of reasons. There, there's a number of factors as to why. Um, at the reality of policing here, and I don't think I'd necessarily change it um, because I understand the, the genesis of needing disclosure, for example. In our court system, you deserve, as a defendant, you deserve uh, disclosure of all the evidence the state is bringing in against you. And uh, the, the, uh, the result of that is that the court can be seen to be completely fair and you can answer your accusers. But a side effect of that is that the people who uh, are accused of being criminals and whether they get found guilty or not, some of those that are found guilty or, or not guilty, some of those are actually criminals. Mm -hmm. And they, they whether we manage to, to prove them their guilt or not, um, and I'm trying to be delicate with this because some people will say, oh, you know, you're talking about them as if they're guilty. The, the reality is, let's, let's be realistic. The reality is, is that police fail to make the case and bring it before uh, the, a judge uh, or a jury. And we fail to make the case that this person is guilty, but they still did it. And they still uh, are ongoing in, in uh, this crime and criminality. They learn from disclosure and they are able to read line by line by line by line how police managed to defeat their, their efforts to go undetected. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there's an element of that that leads to greater sophistication on these groups. And if they can, they do. And if yes. they don't uh, have the wherewithal or the interest, then they, I don't know, maybe get a job and find another <laughs> line of work. Yeah. But there, there will be some that exist within that system that learn from their own mistakes and from our mistakes and our successes. So in the last decade... Where have we kind of come to? Well, the the uh, it appears that um, this group of of dudes in the 2010s that were picking each other off and doing it was cannibalistic to a certain extent, 
and it was highly predatory uh, in other events. They started to um, adopt um, kidnapping and torture on a scale we hadn't seen before. Um, there were instances and cases of genital mutilation that got brought forward to the police where they would pick off other drug dealers and other gangsters and do heinous, horrible things to them. And this isn't on a grand scale. Like I, we're, I, I want to stress that I, I understand and know that we're not living in South Chicago with four, 500 murders last year. We're not mm-hmm. living in, I don't know, Beirut. No, no offense to the, the, the people from, from Beirut. I'd be surprised if someone from Beirut listening to this, but uh, maybe Chicago. <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe Chicago. one day. And so um, when when we start to look at the level of violence here, um, the the broader community has, uh, just like we absorb risk and acceptable level of loss in how fast we drive our vehicles and the, the roadways that we have and, and traffic safety rules, there's an acceptable level of risk. We could make everybody really, really, really safe in traffic uh, uh, fatalities and set a speed limit of 20 kilometers an hour. Mm-hmm. I think I would venture to say we'd have zero road deaths-ish. So- what happens with this group? So they're gone now and so this, we're on to new ones? Yeah, or? this group, um, they ended up, uh, we've got a bunch of guilty pleas out of these guys. They they mistakenly, or it appears that they, they tortured a guy for a drug debt and they made a mistake and they ended up killing him. They, uh, uh, but the case isn't before the court, so I can't give too many details, but we've got okay. a number of guilty pleas uh, because these guys got into a, essentially a police chase uh, and the body was discovered and a whole bunch of investigation uh, yielded um, uh, identifying these individuals and, and a, a really, really solid core group of those guys uh, ended up being incarcerated for 10 years or more. Um, and so we see this new evolution. So between 2012 and 2018, we were able to start to measure uh, serious instances of violence uh, in these social spaces. Um, and so we're, we're able to, to see that because these young men happen to be involved in organized crime and violence, and there was an emergence of uh, uh, prevalence of firearms right around that time, and an elevation in prevalence of firearms, we see that the majority of our, both our victims and our, our shooters end up being uh, able to draw roots back to these these ethnically homogenous groups. So either these Somalian kids, and right now the Somalian community has come forward and said that there are a number of unsolved murders because their young men happen to be involved in firearms violence and gangsterism at this time. And so we see this, this dominant group involved in firearms violence against each other. So at one point, I think we had, to the best of our ability, uh, understood and tried to understand the, the ethnic um, kind of background of uh, or identify the, the the common denominators of who was getting shot and who was shooting. And uh, um, we, we found that young black men were either the victims or identified as shooters or uh, suspects in, in these instances of public violence to like 70 to 80% of all of our cases. And and that's not because there's an inherent, we're not claiming there's an inherent sort of proclivity for violence on behalf of this group across all time and all demographics mm-hmm. and all circumstances. In the Edmonton context, that was happening. And uh, there was a number of different sort of social repercussions for that existence of that violence. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, these were the, these are the stats. Like this is what 
you know, we know who pulled the trigger and we know who the victim was. Correct. And, and, and we, we can say with certainty that the, um, the rise in proportion, so serious violence, let's, let's start talking about what's serious violence. Uh, It's, it's shootings, um, shots fired. uh, So somebody got aimed at, or there's property damage, um, stabbings, homicides, uh, gang beatings, like these kinds of serious acts of violence. Um, we, we can objectively say that a growing proportion of those instances involve firearms instead mm-hmm. of edged weapons. Like that's, that's reflected by the statistics. Now, the only caveat there is that these are the crimes we know about. The ones that mm-hmm. get either reported to police or that we end up stumbling across or, or uh, we find uh, forensic evidence of or, or good, decent, credible witness evidence after the fact. There might theoretically, hypothetically, there might be a, just this mountain of un, um, uh, uh, investigating unknown violence. We get tons of those kind of calls. There's people calling all the time, say shots fired, or we heard a bang, and we, I, you know, I was in the army, or I was doing all this for a living, and, and that was a gunshot, and we'll drive around and not find a single thing. And we don't find so. it. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. It could yeah. have been a firework. It could have been a backfire of a car. It could have been an attempted murder. We don't. We'll never know so, unless somebody admits to it. Let's talk about. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So then we get the we get this group uh, that uh, either um, uh, moves along because of a, a bunch of different factors, incarcerated, or they end up uh, being injured or dead, uh, or or uh, evolving out of this lifestyle. And now we start to see in the last five years we start to see a change in the demographic and those that are involved in the violence. And what we we can say that there appears to be a reflection in the ethnicity and the demographic um, and it's reflected in the lower mainland conflict uh, and it, it's manifesting here in Edmonton and, and to a certain extent Calgary where we have young men from the Southeast Asian community that seem to be getting shot and shooting at a more prolific rate than any of their other sort of counterparts across the gang spectrum. So kids for whatever reason are entering into this lifestyle and there's, there's motivation for violence within these groups. Um, and a resurgence right around that kind of early 2010s to mid 2010s with a peak at 2015 where young Somali kids again, enter into this, um, rash of gun violence, uh, young African uh, kids or, or kids with uh, African heritage, uh, are at the forefront of this use of public violence and firearms violence. And, and they seem to ebb and flow every few years, depending on uh, some of the economics that are happening around here. Yeah, and the, I, we see this pretty much daily. We deal with groups that are tied to lower mainland, tied to Calgary. Everybody's mobile now. Um, borders don't mean anything. Uh, and that, that's like, including the Canada-US border, things get sent over that all the time. Um, I think it's interesting when we talk about the type of violence that they bring here. So you can just go look at old uh, news articles from uh, like Kim Boland. She's a good author on this. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff out of Vancouver, uh, Surrey, and the whole area down there. Uh, you'll see the, the techniques used by these groups transfer up here burning vehicles after Correct, a shooting yeah. might happen. And uh, the other day I was looking at some information and just starting to realize how 
uh, some of these people are linked that we haven't heard of in some time. And we can see the connections and the, the uh, I think it just went undetected, but the emergence of these groups has been going on for years already in the Edmonton area. Like this whole violence issue, it's been developing for years. Yeah, and I think that brings us really to uh, the point of, well, why do we focus on the uh, ethnic origin of uh, these individuals and their families and where they come from? What's the point? Um, the point is, is that what we found, and, and we'll start talking about intervention strategies going forward, and how do, how, how do we impact this, and how do we keep people safe, and how do we help these individuals avoid uh, the same fate? Uh, being involved in gangs because gang gang members and people that associate with uh, uh, like crime syndicates and organized crime mm -hmm. invariably will always be subjected to greater degree and greater amounts and frequency and severity of violence can, in comparison to the general population. They will almost universally feel less safe than members of the general population. And the populace doesn't have to worry about somebody coming and macheteing them or, or, or machine gunning them for something they did last week. But, but our gang figures do worry about that all the time. So they're victimized themselves. As they, as they victimize other people, they're victims themselves. And so it's a horrendous way to live. That's what we can say unequivocally. Short term, it seems to be awesome. And there seems to be a lot of benefit. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it. But um, uh, in the long run, uh, those people suffer uh, fear and intimidation and violence at, at rates that far exceed other people. So when we look at intervention strategies, we find that the police can't do it themselves. So the function of police is not solely to, uh, to incarcerate people um, or to lead to incarceration. And, and that was part of what I was talking about in terms of um, police's need to intervene when something exceeds the community's capacity to deal with. We talk about violence. We talk about uh, criminal investigation. Police have authorities and powers that the general population doesn't. If your credit card gets skimmed, you can't go and, and knock on the, the door of the bank and mm -hmm. get them to produce records. And you, <laughs> that, That's the police's job as a professional organization uh, and professionals within that organization that are granted uh, extra powers and authorizations and training to be able to solve crime that the general population won't be able to. And so when we look at uh, efficacy of incarceration alone in dealing with um, crime and violence, um, historically, we see up to uh, like criminal sanctions up to and including the death penalty don't necessarily act as um, predictable, reliable, consistent deterrence criminal behavior and when we look at homicide well, rates i guess the death penalty would deter the <laughs> dead person from doing it but maybe not the other ones out there well yeah certainly we we look at other uh other countries that have a death penalty and and uh um we still get people willing to commit murder uh for whatever reason willing to commit uh, drug dealing and all the rest it just depends on uh the motivation i guess so it's uh, the incarceration Crime and punishment is supposed to be rehabilitative. Um, incarceration is supposed to be um, prohibitive or almost like a, a, a deterrent. And, and depending on where you fall 
politically or philosophically you can you can speak to yeah that it is a deterrent i didn't do these things or you can take people's personal experiences as they go through life i didn't do those things because I, I didn't want to go to jail well my experience and from the people we dealt with i worked downtown division for a long time uh you always get a flood of people at the start of winter who come in and hey i have warrants hey by Just the way i want to throw their arms open and take me and they want to go spend the winter in remand because it's you know you get three square meals a day it's three it's got, hots and a cot that's right yeah got tv and you know, yeah got some walls and yeah and, and so what are we doing as far as a deterrent there is jail too easy for them from what i've heard remand ain't a great place to be and there's still assaults that happen within mm -hmm. that and so people subjecting themselves again i think we could talk philosophically about if that's the best option those folks have, there's a lot of people with with a lot of compassionate hearts that would say, dear God, can't we do better for those folks? That they're willing to suggest to themselves to jail and imprisonment uh, as as a better alternative to living on the street or whatever it is. But but besides the point, um, is is that the mechanism of what we as a society have have determined uh, as a as a fitting um, element. And, a, and an appropriate element in part of the overall sort of like structure of here's your consequence for antisocial behavior. It might be jail. It mm -hmm. might be criminal sanctions. It might be um, a monetary fine. It might be some of that restriction of liberty until you either learn your lesson or to protect people because you just can't be trusted to not victimize others. So you got to go in the bucket for a while. And while you're incarcerated, we're all the safer for it. Mm -hmm. um, Personally, I, I don't think it's going to benefit um, uh, us as a, a society to lock them up and throw away the key in all instances. There, there are some people that I, I believe should be incarcerated for a very, very long time because they just won't rehabilitate. There's certainly room in the, in the conversation to talk about uh, that being part of the solution, but it's not the only solution. Mm -hmm. And when we look at um, interventions within communities, we have to appeal to where people come from, their peer group or their people that influence them, people that can have some sort of social impact on their lives. We have to also partner with those individuals for that gang prevention, that crime prevention. And so um, there's different intervention strategies across different ethnically aligned kind of uh, sub communities yeah so some things will speak more to certain people based on how they're raised where they come from what type of ethics and values they hold without a doubt yeah, yeah without a doubt and so when we start to look at crafting engagement strategies um uh it's impossible to have a one-size-fits-all just just be this community and mm -hmm. do these things and make your kids play soccer or play the harp or carry grandma's groceries or whatever it is that we come up with yeah. and try to shoehorn it onto a community that just, it doesn't have the same, it doesn't ring uh, uh, true to them or, or it doesn't have the same impacts in that community. We're less likely to see any sort of appreciable impact mm -hmm. on, on crime avoidance or, or group cohesion or, or, uh, adoption of, of any sort of broader social contract. And so um, when we start to see a trend in, um, so if we all of a sudden Martians became a part of our society and, and emigrated to uh, 
Edmonton. Mm-hmm. And we were to say that, hey, man, Martians have been getting completely and totally uh, wrapped up in, in a bunch of shootings lately. They're, they're really got into the coke game. And Martians, are, are they, they're cornering the, the prostitution market or whatever it becomes. We have to be able to somehow approach the Martian community and say, how can we, how can we act in a, in a meaningful and a, a culturally safe way um, uh, to, to... That'll have an impact on the have people Have some this. sort of buy-in to the yes. people that are, are, are suffering from this. Well, and also, uh, I would say hopefully gets rid of the narrative of, oh, well, you're just picking on, you're just picking on us because of whatever it might be. And it's like, well, no, I'm, this is what I see, what I hear, and this is why I'm dealing with you. But I mean, there's always other political narratives and and reasons for why people spin those narratives, but they do a disservice to their own community and they do a disservice to the people that are, that need help, like the actual victims and then trying to reform some of these people that are committing the violence. Yeah, and it goes across all ethnicities. It really honestly does. And so what we see is successful intervention strategies, uh, at least here in North America. Uh, what uh, Edmonton uh, Police Service is trying to adopt is a, a term uh, uh, and a strategy termed in academia as what's called focused deterrence. And focused deterrence uh, took root and was formalized because the elements of the strategy have been in use in modern policing for decades and decades and decades. But uh, in Boston, it's called the Boston Miracle or the Boston Gang Strategy, where um, uh, they they took their uh, certain percentage of, of individuals who were um, identified as being heavily involved in gun crime and homicides uh, in the Boston inner city. And they, uh, as the state came forward together with uh, the police leading the way on the intelligence side. And they came forward to these individuals themselves and their families and their legal representation and said, you are subjecting yourself to risk and the rest of the community to elevated violence. And it's unacceptable. We need to find out from you what the barriers are for you as an individual to abide by the social contract? Is it, is it uh, antisocial behavior disorder? Is it literacy? Is it drug addiction? Is it mental illness? Is it, what are, why aren't you participating? Mm-hmm. Why aren't you part of the, get on the team here, man. And the consequence is relentless pressure from the state apparatus towards you and your friends. If you still exhibit this antisocial behavior, everybody that you know is going to get a cop on their doorstep and there's going to be a whole lot less um, discretion used Mm -hmm. on behalf of the police officers to exhibit both like a a direct kind of consequence to those who are are committing those acts of violence and that antisocial behavior or even to their social uh, support system. Like it, it, it has an impact on when your cousin's getting a mud flaps ticket. Your cousin says, Hey, man, the cops are here looking for you last week. And while they were looking for you, they gave me mud flap tickets, man. So you either got to change what you're doing or uh, like you got to stop coming around here. Yeah. But we have to be really, really, really careful in that. It's almost like, and I've never served 
in the armed forces. Uh, so I, I can't claim to know from personal experience, but from what I can read, it's almost like counterinsurgency work where if we just go in with bombs and we just glass an entire area um, and, and are way too heavy handed, what we get is, is we alienate the entire uh, community that we're trying to help. Mm-hmm. And we, we make people into terrorists fighting terror Having a war on terror is like having a war on jealousy. Like it's it's not a conventional sort of thing. You have to change attitudes from within yeah. over a long period of time. So this focus deterrence piece, in in uh, in a partnership with the enforcement side, uh, it is a very very strong appeal to the community engagement side, where it's not just the police in an adversarial relationship against this individual and their entire community. The police and the state structure go to the community first and say, we want you to be prosperous. We want you to be protected and safe. We want to be, um, some terms are, are uh, thrown in there, like culturally safe. We want to be um, justified in our actions. We want to be fair and, and um, accurate in our, in our representation of who's involved in this crime and, and, and disorder. And we, we appeal to the community to be part of the solution mm-hmm. and so whether it's it's well it, it can be a, a myriad uh different ways for different communities um and so consistently what we see in boston in particular they saw i think it was a 50 percent drop the following year in homicide rates in those identified as being involved in this gun crime and so that has been replicated across kind of the united states has been used in uh, to varying different uh, levels of success in Indianapolis and Oakland and a bunch of other places. And, and it varies in terms of how they're measuring ahead of time. So how does, how does the individual police agency measure uh, gun crime and um, community harm? And so, so the, the measures going in uh, pre and post intervention have to be consistent across the board. And they're not going to be same between municipalities because police agencies, uh, unless you have, absolute control over how they they um collect their stats there's going to be variability there yeah i would say with like a a real eye for i don't know the just making sure we're measuring things for the right reasons and not just because we want to obtain a desired outcome yeah the the uh, political uh sort of consequences mm-hmm. and social consequences for agencies uh unfortunately um has an impact on objective standards um, and police agencies themselves um, they have an obligation to be um, uh, transparent in decision-making uh, 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 sort of structures and, and processes. We have to be objective and transparent in, in uh, allocating resources towards the, the, the worst community harm and, and when it's politically disadvantageous to, mm-hmm. to say those things, it becomes, uh, there, there's a jeopardy there that, that can influence objective standards. And so it's unfortunate, but it's the reality of what we have to live in. So real quick, because I don't want to keep you too, too long, <laughs> but uh, I just did want to ask about how the teaching job is. So uh, so I, I had occasion uh, this past semester to co-teach uh, a class at uh, McEwen University. And um, it 
I've considered uh, teaching. Uh, I, I was originally going to be a teacher when I was thinking about yeah. it. Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, I'm considering going back to school. So it was, it was a really great experience to be able to go and teach um, on selected issues in the corrections uh, uh, faculty uh, within McEwen. Um, we teach all of the stuff that I said here today uh, to a greater or lesser extent, depending on how much time we have in class. Uh, we teach about some of the history and some of the, 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 the origins of, of crime and gangsterism and it extends back to pirates in the 1600s and, and, and the students are, are uh, really, really uh, great. This, this has all been uh, kind of influenced within the police service. I had an opportunity to teach um, uh, bias awareness and communication strategies to recruit classes and there's elements of this um, that have have worked their way into being able to teach and present both internally and externally to, to like conferences and stuff like that um, and we teach about uh, a concept called police legitimacy mm -hmm. um, uh, where where we have to be seen to be impartial and objective and a whole bunch of other things and, and you get increased compliance um, the more the police stick to the rules that, that everybody agrees they should be sticking to. So a lot of that stuff kind of makes its way into being able to, to impart that to new generations of police officers. And then uh, with this university experience, um, it's been pretty unique in terms of like these people are paying to be there and they're not a captive audience in, like I, I can have with a recruit class. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the, the teaching element at a university level, uh, introducing some um, rigorous kind of academic standards uh, to both where I source my information from and the, the expectations for them to be able to display that they've absorbed some of this uh, in creating tests and stuff like that. The, the workload ain't my favorite because uh, uh, I, I got my own stuff to do, but yeah. it's worth it. Uh, it's worth it to be able to have that interaction to kind of see the light bulbs turn on for a lot of people. So I think I'll, I'll continue to pursue it. And I've got a lot of peers across kind of Western Canada that are also doing the same sort of thing. Um, and and there's life beyond policing and teaching, I think. Uh, being able to kind of speak to my own experience and apply it to lessons that we, we uh, put out to the broader community. So cool. Uh, I, I appreciate um, the opportunity to kind of to talk about uh, this as far as a history lesson in terms of what we're doing as a police service, the appeal that we have to making things better, knowing and understanding we have a duty and obligation to do things the right way. Uh, like I, I swore the oath. I, I swore the oath and I volunteer and opt to come to yeah. work and I get paid <laughs> and compensated for my time. So it's on me. And I've, I've been quoted before, um, in, in another conference I did, and and uh, I said I was the I was the face of institutionalized racism, and what I meant by that was like I'm a poster child. Like if if you were to amalgamate uh, the the kind of lived experiences or the stories of people that have have uh, have expressed um, uh, being subjected to some sort of institutional sort of influence on their lives a bald six foot two ex football linebacker captain of the football like mm -hmm. a white guy like i'm it and yeah. so when when i start to talk about um what that does to relationships and when i when i enter into a situation 
regardless of what my intentions are, I carry that around. And I, I just had this conversation this that today with another police officer, or yesterday with another police officer. When I show up, it's like me carrying a bag of rocks. And I'm the one that has to put that bag of rocks down. I can't give that bag mm-hmm. to the person receiving my policing experience uh, or my policing services. It's on me to put that bag of rocks down and make sure it doesn't land on somebody else. So um, the the ability to be mindful of what I represent and the symbol that I am and still deliver impartial, objective, honorable, fair policing uh, as that that uh, representative of the state. That's that's the evolution of policing. That's yeah. where we're headed. And so I look forward to some 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 improvements in relations between uh, our agency and and the broader public and and us as an institution and as a profession in North America. Cool. Well, uh, yeah, that's definitely a fine line to walk. <laughs> yeah, it is. So um, I want to thank you for coming on again and kind of schooling us on the history of some of the things going on in Edmonton and our current situation. So, yeah, we'll look to have you on again. My pleasure. Thanks, man.